Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, The Next Level. The 1924-25 season saw major changes in the ASL as the league took a jump in both reputation and popularity. The competition added four franchises and expanded the schedule to a planned 44 games. Four new clubs began play in 1924, Boston Wonderworkers, a.k.a. the Woodsies, after owner A.G. Wood, the New Bedford Whalers, helmed by a couple of Fall River residents who had previously been active in the old Rovers squad, Providence Clam Diggers, a team that although based in Rhode Island was owned by a trio from Fall River, and Fleischer Yarn, a longtime amateur squad from Philadelphia taking a step up in competition. For those keeping track at home, this meant that the ASL now had five teams in New England and four in New York plus another in nearby Newark. In addition to the four newcomers, the league also said goodbye to one of its original members, New York FC, as the torch was passed to fellow Gothamites Indiana Flooring. Although Indiana Flooring was linked to the company, the foundation of the operation was Ernest J. Viberg. Born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1891, Viberg came to the U.S. in 1912 and quickly became part of the country's soccer establishment. He served as guide when U.S. clubs visited Scandinavia in 1916, 1919, and 1920. Back home, he managed Viking Athletic Club, a largely Swedish squad out of the Bronx. The team was quite successful in the New York State Amateur Leagues. One reason for his club's success was Viberg's connections to various Swedish teams and his knowledge of his home country's top players. Formed in 1923, the Indiana Flooring Football Club largely consisted of players Viberg had pillaged from Viking. Needless to say, such actions infuriated his former team. When NYFC's ASL franchise became available, he convinced Indiana Flooring owner Daniel Von Bremen to turn it into a fully professional side. The haul from Viking included one of the club's best players, the Swede Herbert Muren Carlson. Carlson was born in 1896 in Gothenburg and began his playing career as a teenager. Eventually, his small side was absorbed by local giants IFK Gothenburg. At age 20, Carlson made his first team debut in 1917. He made the most of his opportunity, earning his first international cap a year later, and by 1919 was a regular with the national team. After scoring hat tricks in matches versus the Netherlands and local rivals Denmark, Carlson emerged as a national hero and one of the brightest stars in Swedish football. His international career reached its peak at the 1920 Olympics when he led all scorers with seven goals, including five against Greece in the team's opening match. Even before his performance in Antwerp, he had attracted attention from American teams when he scored all three goals in a win over visiting Bethlehem Steel in 1919. He also played well against the St. Louis squad that toured the following year. In all eras, the ability to put the ball in the net is a valuable commodity, and Carlson certainly was a ruthless finisher. During his international career, he scored 19 goals in just 20 appearances, while on the club side, he tallied 42 goals in 47 games with Gothenburg. What made Carlson such a deadly striker? To put it simply, he had that rare combination of strength and speed. He was tall and incredibly strong, due in part to the fact that he worked as a longshoreman in the off-season. 
As a result, he could hold off defenders, receive the ball, and then turn quickly, accelerate beyond his marker, and unleash a hard shot at goal. In addition to his physical gifts, Carlson was extremely coachable. After being told to work on something, he would immediately incorporate it into his game. Viberg and Indiana Flooring hoped that the Super Swede would lead their new side to glory in the ASL. And now for some headlines from Off the Pitch. Attorney and former Congressman Warren Littleton accused third-party presidential candidate Robert LaFollette of having links to Russia. According to Littleton, a LaFollette campaign official associated with known Soviet citizens on multiple occasions. Furthermore, he concluded that such meetings were part of a Russian plot to overthrow the U.S. government. Terrible scenes in Hanapepe, Hawaii after violence broke out between striking sugar workers and police. The Filipino higher wage movement had been demanding $2 a day, and plantation owners responded by hiring strike breakers and calling in authorities. The resulting clashes led to over 100 arrests and the deaths of 16 strikers and four sheriffs. The Dawes Committee proposed a new plan to solve Germany's reparations problem. Under the resulting agreement, foreign troops would withdraw from the Ruhr area while reparation payments would begin at 1 billion marks the first year, increasing annually to 2.5 billion marks after five years. In sports, the Summer Olympics finished out in Paris. American swimmer Johnny Weissmuller finished with four medals, winning gold in the 4x200 freestyle, the 400 freestyle, and the 100 freestyle where he bested rival and former world record holder Duke Kahanamoku. Weissmuller also took home a bronze with the U.S. water polo team. The big story of the first part of the season was the tremendous start of league debutantes Boston. The hub men, as they were called, went undefeated in their first 10 league matches. As with Indiana flooring, the club had looked abroad for talent to help ensure a competitive first campaign. Chief among the imports was Glasgow Rangers stalwart Tommy Muirhead. Just 27 when he joined Boston, the midfielder was arguably still in his prime, having already played 154 games with Rangers, scoring nearly 50 goals. Muirhead was what we might call today a box-to-box midfielder, skilled in attack but equally adept in defense. He was known as a beautiful passer of the ball who also had a wicked hard shot. The signing reportedly caused a stir in Europe and signaled the up-and-coming status of the ASL, displaying an attitude that in some ways would be applied to nearly every American professional league going forward. British papers believed that the US was a place fit only for old stagers or unsigned second league players. Writing in the Boston Globe, soccer scribe George Collins predicted that sometime soon the British and American federations were going to have to come to an agreement regarding the movement of players. In another bit of Pracian analysis, Collins argued that in order to attract American fans, the ASL would eventually have to cultivate native-born talent. In addition to Muirhead, Boston brought British baller Barney Battles Jr., whose father had twice won the Scottish Cup with Celtic, as well as forwards Alex McNabb and Johnny Ballantyne. After topping Providence 2-1 in their opening match, the Wonderworkers faced perennial title challengers Bethlehem Steel in Boston on September 20th. A mix-up between the visitors' defense led to Johnny Ballantyne scoring after just two minutes. The early goal opened up the game, and play went from end to end during the first half. A poor back pass by Harris to keeper Jack Abel allowed Archie Stark to nip around and score the equalizer at the half-hour mark. 
Boston again opened the second half with a goal, scoring just four minutes after the restart. Afterwards, the Steelmen attacked with gusto, and new signing Stark soon earned his brace with a fine individual effort. The game ended 2-2, despite a Bethlehem Steel penalty shout when Stark was brought down on a breakaway, but no call was made. Boston's unbeaten run continued with two more draws versus JMP Coates and Fall River away. The latter result was a good one, as the marksmen rarely dropped points at home. It was Boston's performance against Fall River at home the following week, however, that really put the league on notice. A record crowd of 5,000 saw Boston emerge 4-1 winners over the defending league champions. Perhaps the players had begun to gel as a unit, since the Wonder Workers outplayed the visitors from the opening whistle. George Collins described the first 45 minutes as perhaps the most brilliant soccer display served here in years. A nice goal from Canadian Andy Stevens opened the scoring in the 20th minute, and it was quickly followed by another Stevens goal three minutes later. Veteran Tommy Fleming made it 3-0 before 30 minutes had been played. Without last year's goalkeeper of the season, Finlay Kerr, making several key saves, the scoreline could have been even worse. Despite Kerr's heroics, Stevens soon added another tally, and his first-half hat-trick effectively killed the game off. Harold Britton would add a consolation goal for the visitors in the second half, but the damage had already been done. Today's sponsor is the Jordan Marsh Company, the men's store of New England. Now featuring lounging robes, a luxury and a necessity because a safeguard to health. Just the right lounging robe appeals to a man and adds distinction to a real man's wardrobe. Look for all our selections on the third floor, Washington Street at Summer in Boston. With Bethlehem Steel mired in mid-table, perhaps still adjusting to the unexpected departures of Player of the Year Walter Jackson and his brother Alex, the door was open for another club to start the season fast. Perhaps it was not so surprising to see the Brooklyn Wanderers near the top of the standings. Although they had an uneven season last year, their play did show some promising signs. Leading the line were Johnny Nelson and Billy Hogg, the duo combined for 15 goals in the club's first 10 games. At the other end of the table, newcomers New Bedford and Providence struggled to find consistent form, but it was holdovers Philadelphia and Newark who really failed to impress. The Skeeters lost eight straight to open the new campaign while being shut out in six of those losses. Meanwhile, they were also leaking goals, having already given up 29, including 8 versus JMP Coates and 5 to Fall River. Perennial bottom dwellers Philadelphia also couldn't find a win to open the season. The Quaker City side's three draws, however, kept them off the bottom of the table. Fans of the New York Giants also had cause for concern after their club managed just two wins in the opening eight games, and those two victories came against the clubs immediately below them in the table, Philadelphia and Newark. Nevertheless, the presence of ASL veterans such as Tommy Duggan, Henry Meyer Dirks, and Bobby Goodert on the roster give Giants backers some optimism for the rest of the season. The ASL's most ambitious season had begun, and it was already shaping up to be an exciting campaign with plenty of scoring. Could Boston maintain its high-flying ways, or will they come back to Earth? Find out on the next Soccer History USA podcast. 
Sources for today's program include Colin Joseph's The American Soccer League, www.bethlehemsteelsoccer.org, the Boston Daily Globe, and the Blizzard. Music from archive.org. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For more information, visit www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thank you.